Welcome to 52 Pearls, the weekly money wisdom podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm joined by Melissa Friedenberg, Pearl Planning Financial Advisor. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) You're never going to forget our names because, of course, we're both named Melissa, children of the 70s. So each week we provide a bite-sized actionable tip that we hope will help you make better financial decisions. The purpose of our podcast is to accompany our weekly financial tips, which we call 52 Pearls. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to sharing along the way. Hi, it's Melissa Joy here, and today I am pleased to be joined by Dan Boyce, who is a guest on our podcast, but also a longtime mentor and friend of mine. Dan's career spanned 35 years as a financial planner. He was a founding partner of the Center for Financial Planning and is now retired and living in Portland, Oregon, sheltering in place with his fiance, two dogs, and two parrots. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we wanted to touch base on a topic that I look to you because I learned a lot about being an investor during full market cycles, but especially during difficult times. And so we're going to be talking about investor lessons from past recessions and bear markets. And this is something that I know that you have experience with. Can you just give a little context about, you know, kind of when you got started as an investor or an investment professional? Yeah, I started uh, in the financial planning uh, field in 1981. It was first significant downturn that I really remember was the Black Friday crash of, uh, I think it was Black Friday, Black Monday uh, of 1987. Right. uh, When the market fell, you know, 25% in in one day. And uh, it was all that followed that. And uh, over the 35 years that I worked in that field, uh, there were three or four other times when there were significant downturns that uh, panicked uh, a lot of people and and caused lots of havoc, uh, as well as obviously angst in their lives. So uh, I I have a fair amount of uh, experience with this type of problem. Well, I was looking up the crash of October 1987 in March because it felt like, you know, I'd read about it in history books, but it feels different when you're living through something and there was just so much volatility that I felt like that had the most modern context to what was occurring. And it was and still is a time period where we're living through history and markets it seems so easy when you have the benefit of hindsight or a rearview mirror to articulate what should be what you should be doing, but that isn't the case as you're living through things. So I always say that your process is where you need to go back to and rely on when you're living through difficulty. But I think you, that you have some suggestions of how you can manage discomfort as an investor. Yeah, well, the first... St- uh- more or less obvious place uh, from my perspective is to have a plan and and stick to it. Uh, so hopefully most people who are listening to this podcast uh, buy into having a plan. And uh, the tough part of that, of course, is sticking to it. Right. Uh, because there, 
just naturally in these times of dislocation, uh, fear is rampant. And so people wonder, well, uh, is it different this time? And will uh, will things not work out as, as we hope they will and as they always have been? So my uh, experience tells me that uh, that's Perfectly normal reaction, but it is a uh, it can lead us to do the wrong thing. It it leads into the the uh, the fear often makes us do things reactively and often the wrong thing. So uh, in part of a, any plan or uh, that's that's built uh, by a financial advisor is typically an asset allocation model, something that tells you how much you should have in stocks versus uh, uh, fixed income, uh, whether that be cash or bonds. And so sticking to that and not varying too much from that is always a good idea. Um, And in fact, rebalancing uh, back to that allocation is also a really good idea. As hard as it may feel at the time, when if you start out with, say, a 50 50 stock bond mix and stocks fall as they did, uh, let's say 20, uh, 20 or 30 percent. Now right. your 50 50 balance may be 40 percent stock, 60 percent bond. So rebalancing forces you to take 10 percent of that bond allocation, move it back into stocks when prices are cheap, when they're, when they're low. And if it falls further, you rebalance again and you're buying when it's even cheaper. And eventually, markets do recover uh, and, uh, and vice versa. If stocks have taken off, you rebalance, you take some money off the top when stocks are expensive, moving it into bonds and holding on for, uh, for the long term. So asset allocation, rebalancing, having that plan and sticking to it are, are all really good ideas. For us, we use that asset allocation. Other people may have different investment strategies. To me, I always look for investments that have a process as well. And you, it's important for your portfolio, your collection of investments to also have that process. And to the extent that the process is something that isn't a feeling, it's not a gut instinct, it's something that you can write down you can have an investment policy statement, something that you can commit to yourself or with your, your financial advisor that this is, this is how you are doing things. Then you kind of have a playbook. And certainly in a time period where things are sunny, that playbook seems easy to follow, but it is important to also continue to manage with the playbook during these difficult times. And I think what you laid out, the asset allocation and the rebalancing have helped people get through the the past difficult markets that we both described. Great point, Melissa. I think having that uh, investment policy is always a good best practice really for, for anyone. Yeah, I'm going to, you know what, I need to earmark that for a future podcast episode because understanding investment Mm -hmm. policy is an uh, underrepresented piece of knowledge for investors. It is. It's it's very common actually in institutional investments, uh, pensions, uh, uh, any uh, endowments, those types of uh, organizations. Typically, 
have a, an investment policy statement, but often people don't think of that from an individual standpoint, but in, often it's just as important. So absolutely. And a, a, an interesting behavioral nugget that I read in a book once is that if you have an investment policy statement and then you sign it, you make a commitment where you have a signature, you're more likely to stick with your plan. There's something magic yeah. about you signing, you know, kind of your commitment <laughs> to yourself. So many little behavioral hacks that can help you because you really are trying to combat your inner caveman amygdala from overreacting during a time period where it's natural to feel fear. That's right. So, so where do you go from there? Because process is, is great, but you, I think we need a few more tools in order to manage through this type of environment. Well, another tenet or, uh, or process that, uh, issue that I've often uh, tried to uh, maintain both in my own life and in, uh, in my clients' uh, situations when I was working with clients was to know where your income is coming for the next five years. Because five years gives enough time for the markets to go up and down and if they go down to, uh, to go back up. And five years uh, is, it's not a magic time. Some people are more comfortable with 10, but uh, I, I certainly don't think you need to have visibility beyond uh, that amount of time. So income, uh, if you're working, uh, for example, uh, your primary income, and assuming that you haven't lost your job during this uh, pandemic, uh, that's you know where your income's coming from. If you're retired like I am, uh, you should know about what you need uh, on a monthly basis. And then you subtract out the income that you're bringing in from pensions or Social Security, uh, the investment income that, that comes in on a regular basis. And what's left, the, the bottom line on a monthly basis, is the shortfall if, if you have one, and, it, and that shortfall should be in relatively secure places, uh, not necessarily cash, but it can be short-term high-quality bonds, it can be CDs, it can be anything that provides a reasonable uh, secure base, and again, have that, uh, that amount covered for the next five years is what I would recommend, because then you don't have to panic when Mark goes down. You know exactly what is um, what you're going to spend over the next few years. Got it covered. Uh, it, it buys you time and peace of mind for things to recover. I think that's great. And timing matters so much. So if you can plan out your months and years, you can have conversations about the length of time before you need you need before you need to make adjustments. That is a way to provide context. So you're not just dangling in the wind when you're feeling this discomfort. It allows you to get back to a more concrete decision-making place. And then perhaps you may make incremental adjustments when you can go back to that calendar and your five years is a prime example, then you're making your decisions in the context of the real world versus just this mindset where everything feels uncomfortable and is fear-driven. Exactly. And it's kind of a sidebar. If you are still working and uh, have been contributing to a retirement plan or whatever, uh, now is certainly still the time to keep adding to those plans. And, and in reality, 
a downturn in the market is what you want because you're buying more shares at these low prices. And, and if it goes down further, you're buying still more shares. And those, those numbers of shares that you're buying now, today's yep. prices are not your prices uh, to sell. They're your prices to buy. I've been encouraged by the number of clients who are asking for that, asking for advice. What should I be doing you know, it is early. So we're recording this in May of 2020. So we're like three months, four months into the market reaction to the pandemic. So it will be interesting as this lingers, because I think in 2008 and 2009, that's might've been the feeling in spring and summer of 2008, but it was more difficult to kind of conjure up those desires to invest more as you got into a darker period between October of 2008 and March of 2009. But again, that's it's good to make a list of these are the actions that I would take if I have the ability to continue to maintain my income and things like that. Exactly. exactly. And again, you're getting constructive, so you're, you're focusing on what you can control. Exactly. Well said. So then also, we've lived through some wild times. I've, this is my third major bear market. And as you just described, a couple more for you. What do you say to people who I, I'm sure still ask you, what do you think is going to happen next? Sure. Uh, my reaction always is and always has been, I have no idea what's going to happen next. Uh, so that kind of leads to uh, another point that I would say is don't try to predict the market. I've been doing this for 35 years and I find I am frequently baffled by what the market does still. And, and my predictions are no better than the average person's. And nobody, nobody has a, a clear vision of what's going to happen. I'm actually uh, surprised here in May uh, that the market has been holding up as well as it has. Me too. Uh, yeah, it, it just with the economy clearly uh, going going downwards. And again, these things are are can be longer term like it was uh, in 2007 and eight. It, it took about 18 months to unfold and we may find something similar here, uh, but you don't know that for sure. So if if we develop a vaccine sooner than than we expect, things could uh, things could head on back up. Um, and uh, in anticipation of better times ahead. Uh, so trying to predict the market is, is just a fool's errand. It tends to, again, that fear and greed that I talked about, tend to make you do the wrong thing at the wrong time. It tends to, uh, uh, you tend to be fearful uh, when, uh, when the market is at its worst. And um, and you move out to the sidelines. And unfortunately, when you decide to move to the sidelines, you have to make two right decisions. The first one isn't hard. It's to get out of the market. Get me away from the fire, right. Yeah, getting away from the fire running. And that feels good, at least temporarily, unless the market starts going up immediately. And if it goes down, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, the, the second, which is a whole lot harder, is deciding when to go back in. And if you go uh, and typically investors will wait too long. Uh, and when the markets turn, they turn in advance of, of a lot of data that, that will confirm that things are getting better. 
and they will turn very fast. And if you we've already that, seen that. Well, we, yeah, yeah, we've seen it. That's right already in in a uh, in this little bit, and it may happen again. So. Mm -hmm. Trying to, uh, uh, in fact, somebody once said uh, more money has been lost waiting for an, an anticipated downturn than is ever lost in the downturns themselves, and and that that I think may well be uh, may well be true. So uh, that resonates. Try, yeah, trying to predict is is just, uh, in my estimation, a really bad idea. I always say that predicting is a fool's errand, and I try to provide information up front to clients when I'm working with them or start to work with them that I'm, they're not hiring me to know what's going to happen next. And that doesn't mean you can't have commentary. You can't observe where perhaps valuations are different or, and when you extend the time period, markets do become more predictable or you can reduce the range of returns or possibilities. But in short time periods, it's just extraordinarily difficult way more complex than anybody makes it. So they, they when you, may, you have commentary, you focus on this is what's happening for consumers or something like that. But how do you put into context trillions of dollars of stimulus, just as an example? Yeah, yeah. And I, I would comment that the pundits in uh, that you hear on in the media uh, are paid to try to make it seem like things are predictable and and rational when in fact they are neither predictable nor uh, at least in the short term rational so they have to come up with stuff to keep your attention and and to to uh, to make you keep watching and that's their business it's it's right. more show business than it is uh uh serious commentary i think it's so true because it, our attention span is shorter now it's about clicks, not even about the remote staying on the same channel. It's it's what is the attention-grabbing headline that averts your attention from what you were otherwise doing. So the goal is not to manage some sort of track record. The goal is to have something that is so attention-grabbing, you choose to go down a, a tunnel that you otherwise wouldn't have gone on when you're when you're looking at I'm not going to say mainstream media, when you're looking at any sort of media or commentary on markets. Yeah. One commentator once called it financial pornography. Yeah. I mean, and it, it is. It's, uh, it's, it's captivating and attention riveting and, uh, and it has very little long-term value. Yeah, sure, just use sure. it for your, you know, family Zoom meeting, but don't use it to inform your decision-making process because ultimately all of the things that we're talking about are how to make more informed decisions, more yeah. rational decisions as an investor. And you can't rely on what you're observing to make your decision, or at least we would argue that, that would, we would discourage you from doing that. Yeah, yeah. So how do you turn, how do you flip this, fear mentality, and how do you avoid greed on the upside too? I mean, I, I love the quote, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. But doing that in real life is totally different than reading in a book and saying that's a great quote. You know, like it's a great meme, but how do you enforce that in your life? 
Yeah, that quote came from Warren Buffett, of course, uh, of Berkshire Hathaway, and it was uh, kind of a takeoff on on Baron Rothschild, uh, who was an 18th century British nobleman uh, born into a banking fact, uh, family, quote that he gave, which was, buy when blood is running in the streets. And he took his own advice and, and made a fortune buying in the panic following the Battle of Waterloo and, and Napoleon's downturn, downfall. So if this idea has been around for a long time, but it is really, really hard to do because you are, by definition, the market, the stock market tends to be at its lowest when pessimism is at its highest. That when pessimism is at its highest, people are selling. When people sell, the market goes down. And so to buck that trend and to work against that is, uh, is extremely difficult to do. So this brings us full circle, I think, back to our, our initial conversation, which was having that plan and sticking to it. So the idea is if somebody really wanted to turn that on their on its head, especially for in down markets uh, and avoid the fear, one would have preset points on the s p or the Dow or whatever that when it goes down by a certain percentage, you are going to increase your stock percentage by a modest amount, not just rebalance back to that uh, rebalance target. But if it goes down 20%, you might add another 5% to your total portfolio uh, in stocks. Uh, so more than rebalance. And if it goes down another 20%, you add another 5%. So those types of, of tweaks can, uh, again, turn that a bit on its head. And that would go back to your comment of having an investment policy statement. Because you'd want to have those, ideally, those opportunities put down in writing in a way that you have internalized the trigger that will cause you to actually do that. Yeah, that is interesting. And I would say one of the things you described is broadly investing in perhaps more stocks. I think so many people try to go to binary outcomes where they'll, they'll find one particular investment that's really beat up and say, I want to put a bunch of money into this company stock or this particular sector or area. And I tend to talk to them at that point about, you know, there are two ways this can go for this particular space where you, you aren't broadly and more diversified providing exposure to yourself. You are looking to capitalize on, on a change of environment or something being out of favor, but you're also maybe subjecting yourself to more risk than you can fathom. Absolutely. And uh, I've seen those circumstances work out, but I've seen a lot of them where they haven't worked out when people take an undue risk, uh, that often unknowingly, and, uh, and end up uh, getting burned as a result of that. So staying, I, I think, staying diversified and keeping, uh, uh, rather than putting too many chips on, on, one, uh, uh, on one number is, uh, is the way to go. Since we have spent our professional careers in Southeast Michigan, I always talk about Ford and General Motors during mm -hmm. the last downturn during 2008 and 2009 because they were similarly just hammered and one company filed for bankruptcy, one company emerged 
to live another day. And so, you know, that's the kind of binary outcomes where it's either like you're dead or, you know, you, you've made money where risk management becomes very important. Absolutely. We were, I was just talking to my fiance last night about a particular stock that she had in the alternative meat space uh, <laughs> and she was interested in it. And I was saying, well, it's, I think it will be a growing the plant-based uh, uh, quote, meat substitute is going to be a big, uh, a big thing in, in coming years, but knowing which company is going to be uh, appropriate and, uh, and be the winner in that space is a different matter. So uh, you can be in the best space in the world, but still go bankrupt. Right. So just one last, You. this is very valuable. And I think, like I said before, what we're talking about is the framework that ca- you can provide yourself to manage your behavior or assist with your behavior. Now you have come from a period where you were you were advising others on what they should do, as well as you had your own personal investment and capital, but you kind of had a river of income coming in when you were working. Mm -hmm. And so today you're sitting on the other side of the aisle, you're a retiree and certainly there's income coming in in some ways, but how does it feel different? What were, what has your perspective changed? Do you feel like you're Mm -hmm. a, um, you're like the doctor who's in the hospital for treatment where you feel some sort, some sort of differences? Yeah, of course. Uh, being retired uh, is, in actuality, is a lot uh, different than, than theoretically uh, being retired. So uh, <laughs> one does have to look at, at one's, uh, one's own situation. So uh, essentially, I, I'm following those, uh, those precepts, the, the ideas that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and that's what gives me uh, comfort uh, in knowing I've got, I know where my next five years of income is coming from. I don't think uh, that these conditions will persist uh, longer than five years. It may be a longer climb back than, uh, than our leaders would have us wish that, that they were, because I think there's been some real damage done on a fundamental basis uh, in the economy. But, but it will eventually get back to normal. And I'm confident that what I've done and I've, I'm asset allocated and I'm rebalancing and doing all those, all those good things uh, with, with my longer-term money that I know I can uh, uh, handle uh, the, the intermediate time frame here. So, and the other thing is, uh, Melissa, of course, just having been through this so many times professionally and understanding it, it's, I, I know the ups and the downs of the market are all part of the, uh, part of the process. And it, they, it does not bother me actually in the least. It's, these are not my prices that I'm going to sell at. So uh, when I sell, I, I, I like to try to sell when things are, are, do, are going well and, and people are greedy rather than times like this. One of the important roles of a financial planner is to be a conversation partner with investors, with individuals and families. And it's important to also evaluate who is a conversation partner of your financial planner. So for me, mm-hmm. going through, I won't say that as an investment professional, just because this isn't my first rodeo, that it feels comfortable, especially when things change suddenly. But I'm so 
appreciative that I have conversation partners I can be very real with. My fellow financial planners, we have such an extraordinary community, um, many friends of many shared friends who are exceptional financial professionals to share the conversation with, be authentic and real because the reactions of the market, it's, you can't, you can't be someone with this profession and be immune to emotion unless you have, you know, a different chemical or brain makeup than the average person. Having someone like you, having conversations like these, which are not atypical, it's, you know, we're geeks. So we like to talk about the work that we do in um, conversations amongst friends, I think is one of the critical components of a successful financial planner is to have that diverse group of really smart people around you to hold yourself accountable to your process and what you do. I do follow that and I am in monthly conversation uh, with uh, with several financial advisors that I've worked closely with uh, over the years and their friends as well as colleagues uh, and I get valuable perspective and input and insight from them. So yeah, one has to be aware of things and uh, at least I do. That helps me feel more comfortable as well. One of the things I I hope you know I appreciate about you is you encouraged an intellectual curiosity when it came to investments and financial planning that has been a foundation of uh, just keeping this career path so fresh and so interesting, but also being able to adapt and be resilient in a variety of circumstances, including in 2020, COVID-19. Well, Blessings on you for taking up the challenge and and fighting the good fight. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We appreciate it. We may ask you to be a guest again someday soon. I know you're doing really interesting work in a variety of areas, but thanks for making the time during the stay at home. Have a great day. My great pleasure, Melissa. You have a good day too. Bye. You can access our first eight episodes now, and we'll be releasing new episodes each Monday. For more information, visit pearlplan.com or our Facebook page, Pearl Planning Wealth.